uh, eight years ago um, now, we uh, were living here in New York City and I was feeling kind of trapped. Uh, I had realized that I was not getting enough time outside of the city in nature and like by the ocean and by lakes and in the woods and um, all that sort of stuff. And I was like, I got, I got some issues here and I was struggling and so I started dreaming a little bit and uh, it occurred to me like I had always wanted to have a scooter like not the stand-up scooters, but like the sit-down, like a Vespa kind of scooter, you know? Like a cool scooter, and my thinking was that I could get a scooter, and I could jump on that thing, and it'd be really easy to park near my apartment, you know? I could jump on that thing, and I could zip out of town and go um, hang out in nature. So that was my idea, and you know, maybe I'd look cool on a Vespa <laughs> cruising around. That might have crossed my mind too. Um, but uh, I was like, I'd have quick access to the beauty of nature outside of the city. So I did what I always do, I started researching and reading articles and reviews and all sorts of recommendations and that sort of thing on uh, owning a scooter. Uh, also realize it has to be of a certain size of motor or whatever to be able to take it on the expressway and it's really hard to get out of the city without going on an expressway. So, uh, so I was like, okay, I gotta figure this out. So I'm reading through these articles and I came across one a very detailed article um, about scooters and motorcycles that totally scared me. Um, which was, I think, a good thing in the end. So the guy who was writing this article was talking about motorcycles and scooters, and he made this comment. It's not a matter of if you will have an accident. It's a matter of when you will have an accident. So if you get a motorcycle or a scooter, it's not a matter of if, it's when. You're going to have an accident. Don't fool yourself. And I was kind of like, uh, no, thank you. I'm good. I've actually never dreamed of having a, mo not positively, dreamed of having a motorcycle accident. I'm not really interested in that. I'm pretty sure my wife and my daughters are not interested in me having a motorcycle accident. So I was like, no, thank you. So ever since that article, years and years ago, this idea of if versus when is like regularly in my mind. So you may not know this about New York City, but there's a variety of when realities uh, in New York City. For instance, roaches and rodents. <laughs> it's not a matter of if you're gonna have a roach or a rodent incident. It's a matter of when. If you've been here for not that long and you haven't yet had one, sorry, but you will have uh, an encounter that you will prefer to not have had. So uh, another funny thing happened last weekend. So we went apple picking. Great time, upstate, beautiful. Uh, a lot of you got to go. We had a, a really lovely time. So I was driving the van back and a buddy of mine was sitting in the seat with me on the way back. Uh, I think I'm the only one that overheard the comment, but so we're riding back, and um, we, he has been around, we've been friends for a number of years, and he uh, has grown up in the city, lived in the city his whole life, never really spent any time outside of the city in nature, and uh, he's gotten to go on a couple camping trips, Young Life camping trips and different camping trips with us, and discovered he really loves camping, but he does not like being in the woods in the dark. Um, which, you know, that's a thing. So camping without being in the woods in the dark is a little tricky, but he loves camping and so he keeps doing it. Well, we were driving back from apple picking and someone in the van made a comment about um, the woods and the, like how much they loved being in the woods and how great it was or whatever. And he was like, yeah, he said this like under his breath. Yeah, it's great until you run into a crazy killer clown. <laughs> and I realized in that moment in his mind, it's not a matter of if. <laughs> it's a matter of when. If you're going to hang out in the woods, in the dark, outside of the city, you will run into a crazy killer clown. <laughs> That's going to happen. That So you've all been warned about camping outside of the city in the woods. It's just a matter of time. 
before you run into a crazy, crazy killer clown. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. There's a reason I mentioned um, this stuff. I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. So we are in uh, the last couple of weeks of this series on, um, on David and looking at uh, David's life in Scripture. And so we've been looking at the events of David's life, his sort of external reality, uh, the experiences that he had uh, as we sort through uh, the stories of David. We've also been traveling with David sort of on his inner life, what's going on inside of him and the emotions that he's processing uh, and that we encounter through the Psalms. So we've traveled with David through his early life, the early days um, of his young life before he became king, the last couple of weeks, we spent time talking about David's great sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband and that whole incident of his repentance and return to God. So it's been a wild ride, um, full of good and bad, full of light and darkness, full of honor and disgrace in David's life. We've experienced the stories and also the deep emotion that David has um, been doing in processing his emotion through the poetry and the psalms that he's written. So it's been a wild ride looking at David's life, kind of crazy. Um, this week and next week, as Iceland mentioned, we are focusing on the incredible losses that David faced through the course of his life, particularly the death of some of his friends and the death of two of his children, two of his um, sons. So we've referred to David as one of the most emotionally present and emotionally aware um, and open people in the Bible. It's not always pretty. Oftentimes it's not pretty at all. But we realize we can learn a great deal from David and um, his willingness to share his emotions uh, through the course of his, uh, his life. So I started off with the silliness about if versus when. Um, but I think it actually directly relates to this idea of loss and grief and dealing with the emotions of loss. So if you haven't faced very many or any significant losses in your life, any sort of tragic losses, then I'm really sorry to spoil it for you, but it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. The reality of losses. Uh, and in the case of loss, it's also a matter of how often. That most of us know in the course of our life, we face over and over again through our lives very different types of losses uh, and grieve as a result of those. And if it's true that we will face significant losses, even tragic, um, devastating losses in the course of our life, then we've got to be talking about that stuff. We need some role models for us on what it looks like to deal with those and express and process through some of that emotion. Uh, and we need a safe place to openly express the deep emotions that accompany the losses that we face. So I'm not sure if you've noticed this or not, but uh, inevitably, as the teaching team stands up here, uh, Alberto or Matt or Wendy or me, there'll be some point in time, and this has happened for all of us, where we will express to you, I had a really difficult week pulling this one together. Uh, and that happens to us, depending on the topic, and what's going on in our life and all that sort of stuff, like difficulty in sort of getting ready to show up here on Sunday morning and talk. And that was true for me. Uh, this past week was one of those um, rough weeks. I spent a lot of time... Um, sitting still, staring at birds in the park, um, wrestling with emotions that I didn't understand and things that um, I was struggling with. Uh, I spent a bit of time crying. I decided to read back through David's life again to kind of prep myself for uh, our, our time together today. And I took various notes, read different books. I kept, like, searching for something to help me sort through what I was running into. But every time I sat down to actually write and kind of pull together the content for our talk today, 
I just couldn't get myself to do it. And I didn't understand what was going on. I was trying to figure out what is blocking me? Why can't I um, sort through this stuff? So on Wednesday, I was feeling like discouraged and confused and stressed. You know, Sunday comes. No matter what, Sunday happens. And you got to be ready uh, for Sunday. So I decided I'm going to get out my journal and I'm just going to start writing. And I couldn't, again, write about this message. I couldn't get myself to write about that. But I just decided I need to do what we've been talking about and try to be open and honest with God and with myself about the emotions, what was going on inside of me. So I started uh, writing in my journal. And somewhere <coughs> along the way, I got an image. I don't know if this ever happens to you where you got an image that you immediately know, like, whoa, okay, that represents something. I got an image of a door, and I knew instantly that behind that door were all sorts of negative emotions. Sadness and anger and confusion and hurt and loneliness, all the stuff that I felt through the course of my life related to the losses that I have uh, experienced. And I knew that stuff was behind that door. And I knew if I was going to stand up here and be honest with you guys about emotion, that I actually had to open that door again. I had to open the door and allow myself to feel what I have felt through the course of my life in the reality of my own uh, losses. And that was what was obstructing my ability to, um, to kind of process through and write the message for this morning. Some, many people, I think, uh, in fact, never open that door through the course of their life. We all have it. We've all lost people we love. We've lost friends and family. We've lost jobs. We've lost our health. We've lost dreams, things that we hoped for or hoped would be in our life. And our many losses create all sorts of deep, difficult emotions. And so we keep that door closed. We don't let ourselves feel it. We refuse to open it. We mask it with other things to pretend that maybe that door's not there. Money, food, fun, guilt, work. We spend loads of time and energy and money keeping that door closed, pretending that that door maybe is not there. So in his uh, book uh, called The Naked Now, Richard Rohr makes a very challenging observation. Um, I want to read a couple of things that he wrote in this, uh, in this book. <coughs> if you do not transform your pain, you will surely transmit it to those around you and even to the next generation. If you do not transform your pain, you will surely transmit it to those around you and even to the next generation. I think we've all certainly experienced the back end of this. We've experienced taking their pain out on us, parents and bosses and teachers and friends and strangers on the train or strangers in the bodega. If we're honest, we know that we have taken out our pain on other people. So Roar goes on to write, suffering, of course, can lead you in either of two directions. It can make you very bitter and close you down, or it can make you wise, compassionate, and utterly open. Wise, compassionate, and utterly open. And when I look at David's life, and when I allow myself to be compassionate towards him, gracious towards him, when I recognize the great pain that he experienced and the challenges that he faced through the course of his life, I begin to see David as wise and compassionate and utterly open. A man willing to bear his soul to God and to us and also to give her per us permission to do that same sort of thing. So as we've been doing this, um, this past month through this series, 
I would like to share with you just some stories of David and some of the losses that he experienced in his life. So be warned, uh, we've given you this warning a lot. David is human, he's broken like you and I are broken. You're not gonna see a perfect process for grieving when you look at David's response to his own loss. He doesn't do it all the right way if there is a right way. Uh, the idea here is for us to observe him, um, particularly his deep emotion and his pain and the openness um, in which he holds those things. In Rohr's words, I think we're going to encounter a man, and we have encountered a man, who is utterly open. And I believe it is his, it's not David's rightness, doing it the right way, that pleases God. It's David's openness with God that is pleasing to God. Okay, so I've got three different stories um, that I'm going to walk through, and we'll do some reading of scripture um, over the next few minutes to give us a picture, just to help us observe um, some of the losses that he faced and how he, uh, he responded to that stuff. All right, so the first loss I'll share with you jumps us back to the stories that we processed four weeks ago. So looking at David's life um, in his teens and his 20s as he served the mad king uh, Saul, the king whom David loved. He was incredibly loyal to this king. But because of David's popularity, we learned in the stories, because of his popularity, Dave Saul, King Saul's jealousy was just went crazy. He went nuts with his own jealousy. And he attempted to kill Saul on a number of occasions, himself throwing a spear at him. He sent assassins, basically men, to go find um, David to kill him. S King Saul himself led um, groups of soldiers to hunt David down and to kill him. And so through all of this, David is on the run. He's under attack by King Saul, but he remains loyal to Saul through all of this stuff, serving him, protecting him, loving him, speaking incredibly honoring towards King Saul. Despite all the things that were going on, defending Saul and honoring him with his words. And in those same years, um, David's closest friend was King Saul's son, Jonathan. We talked about that a little bit. Um, the description of Jonathan and David's friendship is like this beautiful image of, uh, of friendship. And in one particular battle, when David was about 30 years old, um, King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed. And the scene is incredibly horrible. What they do, the way they die, and also what the enemies do with Saul's body uh, is pretty gruesome, um, that as it's kind of described in the story. And some days after this, uh, David heard word that Saul and Jonathan had died. And so I want to read to you David's reaction to this king who he often called his father and loved and to this close friend um, Jonathan. So let me read from Second um, Samuel in the first chapter. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and they wept and they fasted for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. So he wrote this song, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament. A gazelle lies slain in your heights, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines, our enemies, be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields, for the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. 
From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain in your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. So there's a couple of things that I notice as I um, read through this part of um, David's story and the loss here. <coughs> David is this mighty warrior, and in this scene, in front of everyone, we see him weeping and tearing his clothes as a sign of his great sorrow. He's not composed. He's not stately. He isn't even emotionally reserved. He writes a song, which is crazy to me. In this moment of sorrow, he writes a song about Saul and Jonathan, and he requires everybody he knows to learn that song and to sing it in memory of these two people he loved. Regardless of King Saul's betrayal of David, David honors him and I think speaks more highly of him than probably King Saul even deserved. And of his friend Jonathan, Jonathan, your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. So the next loss um, that we'll look at takes us back to the stories of the past several weeks, Alberto's message a couple of weeks ago and Wendy last week, to David's great sin, um, his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Bathsheba's husband so that he could steal um, his wife, Bathsheba, betrayal of his soldiers resulting in the death of Uriah uh, and others uh, to cover it all up. In the midst of his sin, this woman that he had taken becomes pregnant and Bathsheba gives birth to a son. So some amount of time passed. We don't really know how much, but it appears a fair amount of time passed from the time of David's original sin with this and when he finally acknowledges it, recognizes it, and turns back to God. Some amount of time passed through here. And God, in the end, ends up telling David that there are going to be great consequences for David's sin. That God takes away David's sin, but he does not remove the consequences. There are things that have been set in motion that because of David's choices and because of his sin, that God does not stop, as happens to all of us with our, the consequences of our sins. And one of the consequences of David's great sin was the death of David and Bathsheba's son that was born. So let me read some of this story to you. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and he spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him to get up from the ground, but David refused. He would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still alive, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke. How can we now tell him that the child is dead? He might do something even more desperate. So David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead? David asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food. 
and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. When I read this story, I wonder, I'm sort of puzzled by David's behavior here, that in the face of his own sin and the suffering that he caused because of the choices that he made, we see him crying out to God, hiding nothing from the people around him, letting everyone in on the deep pain that he was feeling. And in the end, the death of his son, and when I, in that moment, I expect to see David crushed by shame and guilt for his choices, but David goes into the house of the Lord and worships. So the final story uh, of loss is it's a very long story. I can't possibly share it all with you guys today. Uh, it's a horrible story, a uh, very difficult story to read. If you want to get the whole story, you can check it out in 2 um, Samuel chapters 13 to 19. Uh, it involves another one of David's son, his son Absalom, and it spans uh, a number of quite a few years, actually. So the beginning of the story, we kind of uh, meet this character, Absalom. Absalom's sister is raped by another of David's sons. Uh, and while we see David very angry in the story, it seems that David doesn't do anything about this rape. And after several years, his son Absalom cannot stand the injustice any longer, and so he takes it upon himself to kill his brother who raped his sister, and he goes into to hiding. So the events that follow um, about Absalom's story and what happens, they're very difficult to read. It's hard to know what's going on inside of Absalom's heart. Uh, it's hard to know his motives, but Absalom begins this long road of betrayal and rebellion and acting against his father, David. Um, he, it's interesting to note that, that um, Absalom, it ref Scripture refers to Absalom as a very, very beautiful man. Like, everybody noticed how beautiful he was, and they praised him for it. And they also considered him to be a wise, discerning person, and so everybody loved Absalom. He was this gorgeous leader that everybody sort of f fell for. And so there's actually a story that tells us at one point, just a real small blurb, that he made a statue of himself, put it in a really popular place so everybody could see it, I think, to just be like, don't forget me, how beautiful I am, or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what his motives were, but he made a statue of himself so everybody could see it. So um, we see this sort of behavior from Absalom and this movement more and more towards capturing the heart of the people, but also some sort of agenda that he was um, functioning with. Eventually, David realizes what Absalom is up to, that he's trying to steal the hearts of the people and steal the kingdom from him. And so David, realizing the threat, he's forced to flee for his life. Uh, he takes his family and friends and some faithful soldiers, and David runs, um, runs away, runs for his life. And Absalom then, this man who the story starts with his sister being raped, ends up coming violent against women in some pretty horrible ways. And the story is just, it's just terrible and confusing. But through the story, David's response to Absalom is very confusing. It's confusing to read if you read it for yourself, but also, and especially to David's friends and advisors around him. They don't understand his patience and his kindness towards Absalom. They certainly don't understand David's 
trust in God through all of what's going on. David seems to be at peace in a way and trusting God. Um, On various occasions, David could have killed Absalom. He could have gotten rid of the threat, and he chooses not to. He's gracious towards Absalom. Uh, And his heart is soft and gracious through really the entire story. At one point, David even refers to Absalom as King Absalom. So this rebel who's trying to take his throne, David refers to him as King Absalom. Like he had just accepted this is what's happening. This is what's going on. My son is taking the throne, and now he's King Absalom. So in the end, uh, Absalom is not content. He ends up getting the throne and taking over the kingdom. He's not content with that. He wants to destroy David completely and all of his um, loyal followers. And so Absalom leads an army against David. Uh, There's actually a very sad story when this battle begins that I think is worth um, highlighting here. So as David David is hiding with his family and his friends and his followers, his army, in a city, and uh, Absalom is coming with his army, and so David's army goes out to meet them, to confront them. And as his soldiers are leaving this town, David stands by the gate and pleads, with the men as they go out, and this is what he says, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And I read this story, and I think, like, this is a violent, terrible dude, this rebel king, and David is saying, be gentle with the young man Absalom, my son, for my sake. So David's men end up prevailing against Absalom's army. The the story is, again, another terrible sort of Sad story. Absalom is on his horse racing through the forest. His beautiful hair gets stuck in a tree. His horse keeps on running, and, and Absalom is just hanging there in the tree by his hair. Some of David's men come along, and they end up um, killing him there. But while this is happening, King David is waiting at the gate of that city where the army left, waiting for news of his son, Absalom, which I want to read for you. While David was sitting between the inner and the outer gates of the town, the watchman climbed to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a lone man running toward them. He shouted the news down to David, and the king replied, If he's alone, he has good news. As the messenger came closely, the watchman saw another man running toward them, and he shouted down, Here comes another. And the king replied, He also will have good news. So the messengers arrive. They give news of what transpired in the battle. And... Uh, And then we pick up again here. What about the young Absalom, the king demanded? Is he all right? And the Ethiopian replied, May all of your enemies, my lord the king, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. The king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway, so where he had been standing waiting, he went up to the room just above that where all the soldiers were going to come in. He goes up to that room, And he burst into tears. And as he went, he cried, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I could have died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Word soon reached Joab that the king was weeping and mourning for Absalom. As all the people heard of the king's deep grief for his son, the joy of that day's victory was turned into deep sadness. The soldiers crept back into the town that they had Uh, as that day, as though they were ashamed and had deserted in battle. The king covered his face with his hands and kept on crying, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So I can't um, imagine many more horrible experiences for a father than something like this. 
the picture we get here of such deep agony over his son's death, not a good son. A son responsible, the scripture says that 20,000 soldiers died in that conflict. This dude, this son of David's, whom he's deeply mourning, was responsible for the death of 20,000 soldiers, let alone all of the other rebellion against God and trying to take over God's kingdom for himself. This man who harmed women in his pursuit for vengeance, I suspect all of that stuff was wrapped up in David's deep grief that day. Okay, so those are the three stories to share with you. And when I read through these stories, you can understand why really digging into this and processing this makes for an emotional, challenging week. So as I was processing through this stuff, I'm sort of trying to figure out, like, how do I bundle this up, package it, give it to you guys to make, make us all feel better? You know, how do I give you some sort of moral story on what these stories are telling us that we can all walk out and be like, yeah, terrible things. We feel better now. <laughs> so I can't. Just so you, if you're wondering if I'm going to do that for you, I can't. But here is where I landed as I was sorting through this stuff. And I think this is what, um, what God wants many of us to hear today. That God is not concerned with how well we package our sorrow. He's not chiefly concerned if we say the right words or if we do the right things with our pain. David certainly didn't get any of that stuff right. So God, our loving Heavenly Father, is concerned about our hearts, and he longs for us to open up to him, to share what we're feeling and we're thinking, not polished thoughts and feelings, but the deep, honest, risky, open expressions. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He did not say, get your act together. Get your words right, get your sorrow right, and then come to me. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus' close friend, David, one of his closest friends, or excuse me, Peter, one of his closest friends, said, give all of your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. He is not looking for you to do it the right way or to package it in some sort of polished, you're good enough to come to God and bring your sorrow to God sort of way. Give all of your worries, all of your cares to God, for he cares about you. So I want to return to Richard Rohr's words again um, as we wrap up here uh, and read them for you one more time. If you do not transform your pain, you will surely transmit it to those around you and even to the next generation. Suffering, of course, can lead you in either of two directions. It can make you very bitter and close you down, or it can make you wise compassionate and utterly open. I am convinced that our emotional honesty, our ability to be open and honest with God and with one another about our emotions, this is our starting point towards transforming our pain. Avoiding bitterness and becoming more wise and compassionate and utterly open people starts with us being honest about what's going on in us, inside of ourselves and, and beginning to share that with God and with, um, with one another. And I believe if we learn to do that and we become wise and compassionate and open, utterly open people, that's actually a gift to the world around us. It's a gift to our family and our friends and all the people that are suffering around us who will have our wisdom and our compassion and see our openness as we process the difficult things that we face in our lives. 
So next week, um, Wendy's going to walk us through some of David's psalms related to his own processing of sorrow and pain. Uh, David's poetry has given language to followers of Jesus and believers in God for thousands of years and really aided people in beginning and in being able to express their sorrow uh, and difficult emotions to God. And so we're going to spend some time next week doing that. But just in closing, I want to read for you one of David's psalms, um, Psalm 6. And uh, just close your eyes and listen as I read um, this psalm as David shares here. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead that no one proclaims your name, who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They'll, they will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. I am worn out from all my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping, drench my couch with tears. But the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy and accepts my prayer.